Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. It's the Ancients on History Hit. I'm Tristan Hughes, your host, and welcome back. It's 2023. I hope you all had a great Christmas and New Year. And on the Ancients, we like to kick off the New Year with a bang, with an absolute corker of an episode. And I'm pleased to say that I don't think we're going to disappoint you today because we're talking all about the first writing. And today, the 5th of January, It's a big day for this topic because the results of a new study have just been published, have just been released. This is groundbreaking, breaking news. It's the announcement that this group of incredible researchers, they think that they've deduced the earliest known form of writing, proto-writing of modern humans, of Homo sapiens, dating back more than 10,000 years ago, deep into the Ice Age, into the Paleolithic, the time of hunter-gatherers. We're going to be talking about these abstract marks that have been found alongside many incredible depictions of ancient animals, of cave art. Think of places like the incredible Lascaux Cave, Chauvet, Altamira, etc., etc., Well, alongside many of these depictions of Paleolithic, of Ice Age animals, largely of prey, they found these abstract markings. And for a long time, people have been trying to deduce what these markings meant. Well, now this team, they think they've done it. They think they've figured out this very, very, the earliest form of writing that we currently know about. To explain more about it, what this writing is, Whether we can call it actual writing or we should refer to it as proto-writing, this early form of writing, to explain all about that and why this new study is so significant, why it's so exciting, I was delighted to interview Professor Paul Pettit from the University of Durham. You're going to absolutely love it. As mentioned, it's a corker of an episode. It's a groundbreaking new announcement in the ancient history, in the archaeology, in the anthropology and ancient art world. And we've got it right here on The Ancients for you today. So without further ado, to talk all about it, the first writing, here's Paul. Paul, it is wonderful to have you on the podcast today. Delighted to be on. Thank you for inviting me. You are more than welcome, especially for this topic, Paul. This is super exciting because it's just been announced or this new breakthrough hot off the press what seems to be can we say potentially the oldest known writing from homo sapiens 
Yes, absolutely. There will be some questions about the specific use of the term writing or as we call it, proto writing. But yes, really, it's the first detailed communication that we've been able to identify from the Ice Age. That is so, so interesting. Well, you mentioned Ice Age there. So let's set the scene. How far back into prehistory are we going? What period of prehistory are we talking about here, Paul? Well, as us archaeologists call it, we're dealing with the Upper Paleolithic in Europe. And to put dates on it, that's anywhere between about 12,000 years ago, the end of the Pleistocene, and the first appearance of Homo sapiens in Europe, somewhere around or before 40,000 years ago. Right. So this is a huge period in prehistory nonetheless. And when looking at art and famous, famous art such as Lascaux, Chauvet and so on and so forth, there also seems to be at this time, there's this big, dare I say, advancement or shift in the style of Upper Paleolithic art. Now, what is this great shift? Yes, well, the earliest art we have, whether it be in caves or on portable objects, whilst figurative from around 37,000 years ago, really only takes on the kind of iconic characteristics of Paleolithic or Ice Age art from around 20,000 or perhaps 25,000 years ago. That is to say, lots of depictions of animals, all those herd animals like bison, reindeer, red deer that were so critical for hunting, for survival, that are depicted in highly naturalistic form. So when we think, as you say, of Chauvet or Lascaux, Altamira, Neo and so on, really these are epitomising what we would call the late Upper Paleolithic, say between 20 and 12,000 years ago. But that earlier period is far more murkier. It's not quite as sophisticated as that great big floroit from 20,000 years ago. I mean, Paul, those sites that you mentioned there are absolutely incredible. But just describe in a bit of detail what someone would see if you walked into a place like Lascaux or Chauvet, what sorts of colour, like the vibrant nature of it, you would witness upon walking into this Ice Age setting? Well, Lascaux's the classic one. It's a relatively simple cave, perhaps about 300 metres in length, and it has a series of galleries. These are relatively large spaces, let's say about the size of three standard living rooms and a little higher. And artistic panels comprised of dozens of images of these animals belong are clustered in these particular galleries. So if you walked into Lascaux, after a little drop down into the cave, the ceiling would heighten and you'd find yourself as Robo the dog did in 1940 and his owner who crawled in to rescue him, you would find yourself in the so-called Hall of the Bulls. And as the name implies, a big scene, a stampede of wild cattle, of aurochs, would literally be swirling around your head, accompanied by wild horses, red deer, stags as well. It's a big, lively scene of these animals in their rutting behaviour, mating, competing, fighting. And if you moved around that chamber, you'd stamp your feet and they would echo rather like the hooves of those stampeding animals above your head. And the other main chambers of Lascaux repeat and vary upon this theme. It's a great celebration in multiple colours 
of the creation of the mating habits of these major animals. These are paintings literally produced with brushes and leather pads with a wet paint. They're drawings as well using dry pigments, reds, blacks, biscuity ochre colours and they're engraved as well so in some cases difficult to see perhaps the function of some of this art was not to be seen rather like we go to a museum but the act of creation could have been important so a mysterious dark place with pools of light throwing up these beautiful images. It is certainly pulled one of the great wonders of the Paleolithic isn't it it kind of feels like Pompeii in, in the fact that you have to visit Pompeii you see all the incredible pictures of it but to really appreciate it you have to be there I've never been to Lascaux but I'm sure that you have and it must be quite an unparalleled feeling to walk through that Ice Age system Absolutely. I have and it is, although to get a plug in for Lasco 4, which is, as the name implies, that the third reconstruction, it is remarkable, the visitor centre there. So you can get an impression there. But the important point is, I think, with caves and cave art is that they are the only surviving three dimensional environments left of the Paleolithic. You know, we're used to our levels of stone tools and abandoned animal bones and so on, which are very two-dimensional. So here we can walk quite literally on the surfaces our Ice Age forebears were walking on and we can experience the art exactly as they did. You mentioned it earlier, but I feel it's something that we want to mention again because it's important to our discussion and the work of you and your colleagues right now. The depictions of these animals, they seem to largely be of prey animals. They are almost entirely, actually. So, of course, we're dealing with Ice Age hunter-gatherers, entirely dependent on the hunting of wild animals and the gathering of wild plant matter where they exist. So, really... Animals on the hoof, those great lawnmowers of the, of the steppe grasslands uh, were so critical. So it's no surprise that these animals were good to think with, to think about and therefore depict for whatever reason they're doing it. So really it's a celebration and probably a deeper meditation on these critical animals. So yes, reindeer, red deer, Mammoth elsewhere, not so much in, in Lascaux, but those animals that uh, were repeatedly being hunted and which were known, the behaviour of which was known intimately to these people. Right, Paul, well, let's keep going then. Talk to me. This seems to be very much the, the meat of this interview. Talk to me about the abstract marks that have been found alongside these images. Yes, and it is all about meat, you're right to use, uh, to use that term. So obviously we've focused on the wonderful images of the animals now, but what we rather boringly call non-figurative signs often accompany these images of animals. And by these, they're markings which may be rows of lines or rows of simple dots, either produced with a pigment or engraved and sometimes other signs that to use our modern language we might call Y signs like the letter Y or X's and this kind of thing. Now we can tell that these were associated with depictions of animals and it's no surprise that we understand that they were probably saying something about these animals in no different a way say to earlier Sumerian 
cuneiform or pictographic writing where a sheep is depicted with three dots and that means I owe you three sheep and I'll give you them later Tristan you know that kind of thing but up until now we've simply not been able to understand what in fact these markings these non-figurative signs are saying about these animals so we know it was a an information system whatever we call it we just couldn't read it and that's really what introduces our new publication i mean that's so interesting paul so it was never thought from researchers or academics before this study of, of you and your colleagues that these abstract markings, they may not be, let's say, blood splatters or something like that. You, there was always this feeling, this gut feeling that they had something to do with a system, as you hinted at just there. Yes, that's right. There have been interpretations that these were figuring something. So if you have an arc of dots coming out of an animal's mouth, as you say, it could be blood spattering out of it and so on. It never seemed to sit particularly well because the images of the animals are so naturalistic and often there's a beautiful concern with detail. So why then would you not depict blood spattering in a, you know, in a graphic manner? So that was always rather odd. So because also there is a very restricted number of these, one might say a redundancy. You know, you don't just get any variable number of dots, lines or whatever associated with these animals. It's always a very specific number. And that indicates, or that really suggests that there's some meaning to the number of these marks, that they're not just random to depict something. Hi there. I'm Don Wildman, host of the new podcast, American History Hit. Twice a week, I'll be exploring stories from America's past to help us understand the United States of today. Join me as I head back in time to witness Thomas Jefferson write the Declaration of Independence, head to the battlefields during the Civil War, visit Chief Poetin as he prepares for war with English colonists, tour Central Park before it was Central Park, and a city in Tennessee which helped build the atomic bomb. From famous battlefields to secret cities, from familiar names to lesser known events, I'll speak with leading experts from across the United States and beyond to bring American history to life. Join me every Monday and Thursday for American History Hit, a podcast by History Hit. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rose, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. 
That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. plushcare.com slash weightloss. All right, Paul, well, take it away. What is your hypothesis, you and your colleagues' hypothesis, about what these marks therefore do indicate? Absolutely. Well, I have to say, I would never have had a clue about this were it not for this labour-intensive pioneer work of Ben, our lead author, Ben Bacon, who has spent years gestating on this and constructing a, a huge database. So the idea is that these are representing in quite some detail, major events in the annual lifetime of these animals. So if you imagine you're out on the grasslands, on the steppes of Europe as a hunter-gatherer, you need to know where these animals, critical to survival, are going to be at certain points of the landscape. We know these people were highly mobile. How do you know that you have to be in London at a certain time to get all the wild horses and then up in Durham at another time of year to get the red deer, for example? So Ben hypothesised that the number of marks associated with a particular animal, a reindeer, a red deer, whatever, were reflecting in some way major events and birth and mating are, of course, those two events you know you'll get a lot of these animals together at the same time. So he hypothesised that they were representing when those animals mate and give birth in a general region. But the thing is, that has no meaning unless you can link it to a fixed point in the landscape. If I say to you, mammoth, we know are mating at four <laughs> or in four months, what does that mean? So it's only meaningful, relevant to a fixed point. So I think Ben's real critical breakthrough discovery was that there is a fixed point in the landscape for hunter-gatherers. They're not agriculturalists. We're used to this. We observe the sun. That gives us our annual calendar and within that we can divide up months by the phases of the moon but hunter-gatherers have no use for this they're not sun oriented if you like so whilst they certainly would be aware of the monthly lunar cycles 13 of which there are of course in a typical year they need something else to begin the year with if you like or begin their observations with and Ben's innovation was that the one fixed point everybody can recognise is the beginning of spring. That is to say, you're in a snowy, ice age, steppe environment. Everything's white, rivers are frozen over, etc. And then you have that point where the rivers start melting, greenery starts appearing. And he uses the French term for this. There is a term, a zoo archaeological term, the bon saison. So it makes real sense that you have that fixed point and then this is what the markings represent. The number of months after the beginning of the bon saison that these animals mate and give birth in. So Ben had observed you never get more than 13 
of these marks, which is perfect. That really adds reinforcement to the notion it's a lunar calendar. And also that typically the number of marks is in the order of one to five. So to convert that, if you arbitrarily say Bonsaison is the 1st of May, then it's giving us an indication of events that occur in June, July, August, September, that kind of area. So we were able to test this, you know, so obviously it was quite an easy task to take all of that data, several hundred sets of markings and associated animals, divide them up by animals. So in this case, one depiction of a red deer is depicting the concept of red deer not an individual red deer, and then summarise the number of marks associated with a red deer, and then do the same for mammoth, the same for bison, and so on. So what we were then able to do is to compare that to the months in which we know modern equivalents of those animals are mating, are migrating, and are giving birth. And the fit is absolutely beautiful. We can show that the number of marks in a sequence of lines or dots associated with a particular animal tells us exactly when that species is mating. And the Y sign, and this is the, the critical thing, it, it looks like a modern Y in our alphabet. It's one line with a second line diverging from it. And Ben hypothesized that that means giving birth one becomes two, one line becomes two, or perhaps two legs opened in the act of birth. But anyway, the position in those sequences of lines of the Y, we were able to show, again, using modern ethological analogies, is an excellent predictor of when those animals are giving birth. So a sequence of lines with a Y at one position somewhere within that will tell you when that animal is mating and when that animal is giving birth in a particular region. That's the discovery and it stands up statistically as well. Oh, that's absolutely fascinating and I hope you don't mind if we delve a bit more into it because I could go through so many different angles rabbit holes here but Paul you mentioned like some 700 examples in this database. Could you give us a few particular examples from this database? Like whereabouts in the world are we talking as in when you were looking at examples where you had depictions of this animal prey art, but also these markings right next to them. Absolutely. So it's European, Upper Paleolithic, and overwhelmingly the data is from Central and particularly Western Europe, France, Spain, but without liars in Germany, Czech Republic and so on. Ultimately, we can trace this over to as far east as the Russian plain, for sure, that is something that we need to do further. So for now, there's over 700 examples from the caves and from the portable art of Western Europe and some to some degree Central Europe as well. Also, although these examples do go back to the earliest Upper Paleolithic, you know, certainly to 37, 38,000, almost all of our examples are within the period from about 22, 23,000 to 12,000. We've deliberately focused on that because the greater amount of examples are from that. 
And also because we were initially sceptical that we would expect a system like this to last for, I mean, that's long enough, 10,000 years, but to last even longer. But it does seem that this very simple, very generic system that doesn't require a sophisticated language, doesn't require one person to understand another to make sense of this, you know, it does seem to have persisted an extremely long time. That's so interesting in itself. So, Paul, in regards to this potential language writing system, sometimes you think of writing in ancient history and you think only the elites would have been able to understand it or only like the people who received such an education could understand the writing and could read and so on and so forth. Do you think, it must be such an impossible question to ask, but this these use of markings was used for so many people in a hunter-gatherer society where people had to embrace so many different roles to survive would have been universally understood for this vital part of the hunter-gatherer lifestyle, to understand the movements, the activities of their prey. Yes, this is most certainly vital for surviving. It's probably the ability that gave Homo sapiens an edge with hindsight over, say, the Neanderthals and perhaps the Denisovans. It's certainly critical, but it's a fascinating question as to how many individuals knew that or was it a secret information as Small-scale societies tend to have their aggrandizers and secret societies and this kind of thing. So it could be individuals among whom this spreads. I think the interesting thing with what we've identified is that it is very simple, doesn't require any particularly specialist knowledge. And indeed, Ben was able to decipher it in the modern world. So in theory, it could have been helped by everyone. And the cuneiform specialist, Irving Finkel, has made a very good point on these tokens you have in Neolithic and Bronze Age Near East that ultimately may have developed into Sumerian cuneiform. He said, you know, basically, if you've got simple tokens, that's your way of telling an illiterate shepherd that they need to give the temple three sheep, you know, at this time of year and so on. So it could well be that pretty much anyone in Ice Age society we're able to share this information, we're able to read off this information, if you like, and therefore improve the chances of survival. And in the examples that you and your colleagues, including Ben, this huge database of examples, I'm presuming, did you see examples of similarities? Let's say a depiction of a deer somewhere with markings next to it, you had the same number of markings next to a deer found in a different location in Western Europe too. Exactly. That's right. There is always a very restricted pattern. So, for example, with horses, whilst there's variation, you typically get one line followed by a Y. So it's a sequence of two marks, the second of which is a Y, which showed they mate in May or June and give birth in June or July, that kind of thing. So, yeah, that was the real surprising thing. It had to mean something because otherwise one would expect a really random set. And, and my colleague at Durham, with whom I work, Bob Kentridge, was able to do some stats in this, and it showed overwhelmingly that these were terrific predictors of birthing and mating for these animals, and the chances of it arising naturally were infinitesimally small. Well, that was going to be my next question, therefore, with your conclusions. This whole meteorological calendar this lunar calendar pre-agricultural calendar which is fascinating in itself we have to talk about that a bit more 
But the marks, do you think they would have been very reliable, were reliable to quite a good extent for these moving hunter-gatherer societies? Yes, I think so. One thing we can tell using other categories of data is that things often quite sophisticated things, are travelling around the landscape over hundreds of kilometres. So, for example, specific very fine quality stones are moved around or artefacts napped on them. Pigments we can source geologically. We know they're being transported or exchanged over distance. So art themes as well we find over long distances. So it's no surprise that something like this simple system should have a very widespread distribution, a widespread currency, certainly. So I imagine it was relatively easy to communicate what this meant. This is how to read these images. This is a horse. And look, in this area, Brighton, they mate in this month relative to the greening of the land. And in this month around Brighton, they give birth, you know. And such what sorts, when we think Ice Age, we think of megafauna such as mammoths alongside horses and aurochs and the like. In regards to the amount of abstract marks alongside these prey animals, do we see quite a focus on, on those big megafauna such as mammoths? Or is it a variety of fauna that they would have hunted? It's a variety and we group them together. So we have horse, mammoths, bison, wild cattle, aurochs in other words, cervids which could include red deer or reindeer and caprids which is in the montane areas ibex chamois this kind of thing and fish as well which are a little different fish and birds as they kind of appear and disappear they're migratory of course so uh, although our data really stacked up with their behavior we're not dealing so much as a, an observable mating and birthing period so those are the main categories and those indeed are the main animals which are hunted. I mean, it is all absolutely fascinating. Before I completely wrap up and ask you the all-important question, is it writing? Giving you a bit of hint where we're going here, Paul. I mean, last thing for me, there's no such thing as a silly question. I'd like to go back to your mentioning of how you never see more than 13 marks. Now, from looking at that, how were you and the team therefore able to conclude that this type of calendar that it would have been would have been a lunar, a meteorological calendar? Firstly, there's not many possibilities available as a way of dividing up the annual year in a repetitive fashion. So the moon is by far and away the most obvious. And in fact, since the 1960s, Paleolithic archaeologists have speculated as to some sequences of marks reflecting a lunar calendar. Ironically, not so convincing these days. But anyway, that's the, always the obvious candidate for a society who doesn't need to sow crops and watch them mature and reap them at a certain time that can use the sun and so on. So it was always the lunar calendars to lose, as it were. So the fact that we know that there's 13 lunar phases to the year really added impetus to the project when we saw that really 13 is the maximum and usually a lot less but that's when Tony Freeth of University College London became involved. Tony has been instrumental in the understanding of the ancient Greek Antikythera mechanism so knows everything there is to know about meteorological phenomena, calendars uh, and this kind of thing and his knowledge in particular has been crucial to bring that to bear. 
Well, there you go. Well, time is running out. I'm sure I could ask so many more questions, but the last, last big one, therefore, you have these abstract marks, which definitely seem to indicate, you know, to help hunter-gatherer societies with hunting prey, marking out when the birthing and the mating seasons were for their prey. Can we call it writing? I don't think we can call it writing per se, in the sense, say, of Sumerian cuneiform. Because, as far as we can tell, it's very restricted and it wasn't used to represent words. So it was used to represent concepts, but it couldn't independently be used to construct words. We've called it proto-writing because it does behave or it does look very similar to the Sumerian precursor to cuneiform writing, a pictographic writing. In other words, as I said earlier, you know, the, the image of a resource and a numerical association with that. In that sense, we're certainly justified calling it proto-writing. But I don't think I'd drop the proto just yet, not least of which uh, I'd be shot by writing specialists, I'm sure. But I hope you'll agree that, you know, proto-writing is some achievement. We need some precursor for later writing to form out of, if you like. Absolutely. Well, that still, I think, lets us put the title as the first writing for this interview episode today, Paul. But that's so thank you very much for that. It is an incredible breakthrough by you and your colleagues. And it's such a privilege to be able to interview about it, you know, right when this is being released to the world. I mean, just before we completely wrap up, Paul, is there anything else that you'd like to add about the process, about you and your colleagues, about this whole breakthrough and its significance? Well, for me, yes. First, the critical importance of amateur, to use the term in its nicest sense, input into archaeology, Ben and our co-authors, uh, Azzy and James, and of course, using perspectives from different people. And Bob Kentridge, our visual psychologist at Durham, with whom I work. So that collaboration, multidisciplinary, and above all, Ben working all those evenings <laughs> at this as well. You know, that's the great fun of archaeology. Well, Paul, absolutely. And it just goes to me to say thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast this morning. It's a great pleasure. Thank you. Well, there you go. There was Professor Paul Pettit from Durham University, who was very much involved in this groundbreaking research. There he was talking you through this recent announcement in the ancient history world and why it's so exciting. The first writing that we know of at the moment from Homo sapiens. Who knows what will be found in future years. I really do hope you enjoyed the episode. And may I just say, welcome back. Here's to 2023. It's going to be an absolute belter of a year. I could talk for hours about the topics that we're going to be covering, but I will leave for you to find out in due course. Now, last thing from me, I said it in 2022, and I'll say it again as we kickstart 2023. If you're enjoying the Ancients podcast and you want to help us out, you know what you can do. You can leave us a lovely rating on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts from, because it's easy and it really helps us. We love seeing the feedback and it helps us with our main overarching mission, which is to share these incredible stories from our distant past with you and with as many people as possible. 
and also to share with you this incredible expertise from these scholars, from these academics, from these authors who have dedicated so many years of their lives to researching particular aspects of our ancient history that they find extremely fascinating. That's enough rambling on from me. You've got much more to do than listen to me all day, so I will see you in the next episode. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Ancients. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget, you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code ANCIENTS at checkout.